Today on Not Sam Wrestling with Survivor Series and the return of War Games only days away, we look at the history of one of the greatest spectacles in all of professional wrestling. Plus, Bianca Belair is on the show. This is Not Sam Wrestling. Introducing your host from New York, here is Sam Roberts. All right, welcome. How are we doing? To all our uh, wonderful listeners stateside, happy Thanksgiving. To all of you listening that are not stateside, we're having a great Thanksgiving over here, over here all week long. And to me, Thanksgiving is a, is always associated with wrestling podcast history. I will never forget on Thanksgiving. It wasn't even the Wednesday before Thanksgiving. I believe it dropped on Thanksgiving morning. The most famous, most important podcast in the history of the business and one that a lot of people would probably prefer never to talk about again, but it's it created the industry, in my opinion. That's the CM Punk Cult Cabana podcast. It, it Nothing like it had ever been done before. The idea of an exit interview where a big star kind of tells all and doesn't do it for uh, $20 a copy on a VHS tape in the video offices of RF Video, but instead sits down with a friend at the time and tells their story. I mean, this is a podcast that crashed Colt Cabana servers. It sent ripple effects through the industry. It had legal ramifications. It had everybody talking, not for weeks, not for months, but for years. I mean, to this day, I think people still reflect on that podcast. And it and it, and it remains, uh, I think, the most important single podcast in the history of wrestling podcasts. And I, I always think about that. Uh, on on this week, on this Thanksgiving week. Now, I also would say, wouldn't it be nice to always have something very newsworthy to drop Thanksgiving week? I feel like I can't get too greedy. I did that for you guys last week with Nick Aldis, and we appreciate Nick Aldis being on the show. We appreciate him choosing Not Sam Wrestling to be the venue that uh, he told his story. Uh, I found it to be absolutely fascinating. I would hope by now that you've all heard that interview. If not, of course, it was last week's podcast. It's also available at youtube.com slash not Sam wrestling. So yeah, that's, that's a good one. If you need a good, uh, meaty, newsworthy, truthful interview to sit down with, if you haven't yet found time to listen to that great Nick Aldis interview, then, uh, definitely go ahead and do that because not only will it shed light on everything that Nick was going through, but I think it sheds light on a lot of what happens in wrestling and a lot of the sides of the industry that we don't see, not in a nefarious way, but just in a in a human perspective way that I think I know that since since doing the interview, I've looked at things happening on different shows and gone, oh, that's that's what Nick was talking about. Oh, I see that differently now. So really, really interesting. Uh, I also, since we last spoke, got the opportunity to see I watched. The Last Match musical. I went to see it there in Jersey City. Uh, the Last Match, a musical. Uh, it, of course, Matt Cardona was here on the show a few weeks ago promoting it. And uh, last Monday night, I did make it out. Uh, a who's who. A veritable who's who. 
was there in attendance to see this thing, uh, sat with the most professional wrestler, Brian Myers, uh, Knick, the designer, inventor behind Major Bendems, uh, uh, Thunder Rosa and Dave LaGreca were both there. I sat with Dave LaGreca and Thunder Rosa to enjoy this thing, and I will tell you that the truth is that I went to go see the Last Match musical. Uh, it's a wrestling musical theater piece. It's 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 a it's a musical, but it it's not on Broadway. It's on Jersey City. It's in Jersey City right now, and uh, it takes place in not only in the world of wrestling, but around a wrestling show. It there's a rest, it most of it takes place inside of a wrestling ring. But the whole show is about this giant wrestling show in the 80s that's happening and the stuff that's going on backstage and and what's happening in the big match and everything. And I went to this thing and I'm not going to lie. I went to this thing cuz I thought I'd be able to make fun of Matt Cardona after it. I went to this thing cuz I thought I would be able to mock Matt Cardona doing a goofy wrestling musical. I like musical theater. I like professional wrestling. I just have never effectively seen them merge until Monday. Because, I mean, by the end of the first number, I was there with my wife, and I looked at her, and I was like, I love this. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm really enjoying myself. And I think that that's because the producer of this thing, the guy who created it, is so obviously a wrestling fan who just gets it. And... Through the musical, while it is about the show that's happening, what it's doing is it's using the form of a musical to try to explain to people why we as fans love wrestling as much as we do. There's one number where they're explaining all the different wrestling terminology and everything. It's just, it's really, really well done. It is so much better than it has any right to be. I was really impressed by it. Um... And I'm, I mean, I was impressed enough by it that that hopefully I'll end up doing more stuff with those people because I, I feel like it's it's got some serious legs. I hope that it goes on tour outside of Jersey City and, and that some people get some eyes on it. If you if at some point and I will promote it here because I liked it, if it does end up going to your town or whatever, make sure that you see it or if it comes back to Jersey City and you're here on the East Coast and, and you haven't gotten a chance to get out there yet. And by the way, Monday night, it was sold out. It was packed on a Monday night to see this thing. So word of mouth is spreading, uh, and it should be. It, it's great musical theater. It's great wrestling. Bull Dempsey was in it doing a full-on match. Uh, Manu, you got Afa Jr., he was there. I mean, it was, it's, it's, it, it is truly a mixture of great wrestling and great theater, and it's combined into this awesome wrestling story, and that's what this is all about. Wrestling stories. Now, we are going to be telling the story of the War Games match later on on this show. Bianca Belair is going to be joining us later on on this show. But before we get there, uh, I had a great weekend watching Full Gear. I love these Saturday pay-per-views. I'm looking forward to Survivor Series this coming Saturday. But Full Gear was a lot of fun. Hot Dog came over. We got some wings. We watched the show. I thought that the length was appropriate. Wasn't I was worried it was going to be way too long. I think that, it, you know, it could still, you could do less matches, but I didn't feel like I had been through a marathon the way I have in previous AEW pay-per-views. Maybe it's because all the matches were good. There were no bad matches on the show, I didn't think. Um, it was cool to see the Elite back. It's interesting, the choices that they're making with the Elite, you know, that they're not making it kind of the biggest thing in the company that the Elite is back. You know, instead, they're just going to be wrestling the death triangle for a while, which I'm not mad at. 
you know, for the rest of 2022. We're just going to be watching the elite versus the death triangle on every single show. I think that it is going to, it is like when you put it on paper and you see all the events that you're going to see this match that we just saw on pay-per-view, it looks ridiculous. But I have a feeling that this is going to be one of those best of sevens that we're all like, dude, all of them are amazing. And it's going to seven, by the way. It is definitely going to seven. Uh, and I think I feel like the last the seventh match is in Los Angeles at a dynamite. Uh, it's going to be a big match. I think uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I think it's going to be effective. Uh, I was glad that uh, to see Soraya back. I was shocked at how long she went. I was shocked at how much she did and how good she was. You know, it's like she hasn't missed a beat this whole time. It's and it's it's a scary thing. I was. I was made to be nervous by the amount of time they spent selling the neck and everything. Uh, I wish that Britt hadn't gone in as such a babyface. I didn't understand why they went so hard because her babyface promo was so good and so effective that you can't not cheer her. And it's almost like I I I wanted it Soraya's return to be more like Edge's return in the sense that it was just like the whole story is the fact that Edge is back. We never thought Edge would be back, and now he's going to go and, and conquer this villain. You know, I, I feel like I would have had Brick try to get in as the biggest heel possible, and then after the match, immediately turn her. I get that you want to turn her, and I get that there's not much you can do because everybody loves her, but, you know, I don't know. I, I, I just, for me, I would not have her be a babyface going into that match. I would have her be a babyface coming out of that match so that Soraya gets, you just get as much bang for your buck out of the Soraya return. Uh, Jamie Hayter winning the women's championship is absolutely the right move. I was I was afraid for a couple of seconds. I, I mean, I just don't think anybody benefits from Jamie Hayter not being the champion. I think Tony Storm is gonna benefit from Jamie Hayter being the champion. I think everybody does. I think that Jamie Hayter should show up on Dynamite and declare herself the women's champion and insist that the word interim just simply be removed, you know? And I, I think that that sets up an even better story for when Thunder Rosa comes back and has her women's championship. And we have, you know, women's champion versus women's champion, not interim. I think that the interim title, the, the, in, the using the word interim, I think should be done in AEW. I'm done with it for me, for sure. Uh, and then, of course, uh, I mean, the Ring of Honor four-way was great. Uh, if you are a Patreon subscriber, I previewed the whole show on the Friday before. And, uh, I mean, I called the Samoa Joe thing. I Hopefully, it's going to be built and built. with. I, I want to see Samoa Joe with two titles killing everybody. I want to see Wardlow with no titles killing everybody. And I want to wait all the way until the next pay-per-view, unless there's a giant dynamite coming up. Maybe the dynamite in L.A., Maybe the, well, no, that feels a little, well, no, it's January. I forgot there's seven matches. It's almost two months. It's two months. So, yeah, I, I oh, maybe Dynamite in LA. I think that the move is to build and build and build until you've got a giant Wardlow versus Samoa Joe singles match and Wardlow wins the TNT championship back because I think that Wardlow needs to, start from scratch and get that moment back. I think that he had that moment when he beat MJF, but I don't think enough has been made from it. I think that that moment needs to be recreated. And I think the way you recreate that is to have him beat Samoa Joe at a big show, whether it's dynamite in Los Angeles or whether you can get until revolution or whatever the next pay-per-view is. 
I think that that's that's where hopefully that's going. And if it is, then good. Um, I like the uh, I uh, swerve in our glory breaking up. I think is a good thing. Uh, not because they weren't a good team, but because it excuses the loss. It allows the acclaimed to continue to go on and 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 go through this amazing build. I mean, when you look at it, the AEW champions are. Uh, Jamie Hayter, the acclaimed, the world champions are Jamie Hayter, the acclaimed, and MJF. The TBS champion is Jade Cargill. Like they're 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 clearly going back to really putting the emphasis on homegrown talent and all that AEW is doing, which is the right move. And it does bring me to that uh, main event. And, and and but still, I mean, we have to get FTR versus the acclaimed. I don't know. Again, if you're going to do that in Los Angeles, or you're going to wait till the pay per view. But you have to do FDR versus the acclaimed. And I can't see how FTR doesn't win, but at the same time, you can never see me be smirching the acclaimed. Uh, and then the main event with MJF and Mox, uh, predictable, I think. By the time we got to the pay-per-view, I think most people assumed that this is where it was going. Uh, hopefully, all this MJF baby stu baby face stuff has been a swerve. Uh, it's felt like a swerve. I've thought it was a swerve only because it doesn't work nearly as well as MJF being the devil. The devil doesn't get the fans clapping, you know? Not that the fans shouldn't cheer. I'm okay with the fans cheering him. But if MJF is going to be a babyface, you have to remain on MJF's terms, you know? I, the idea that that he went from, I want to win the world title because I want my, I just want more money and I want to be worth more when my contract is up at the end of the year. And then, you know, he's doing an off-air promo, putting over Tony Khan and talking about how he wants the title so he can be the best wrestler in the world. I hope that on Wednesday we get some exposition and it's explained that that was all a swerve. He was tricking all of us and that he's just here for the money and that William Regal is by his side and ensures that he's a villain. You know, I think that's the way to go. I think Mox will probably be off TV for a while. And I think the Blackpool Combat Club continue as Daniel Bryan, Claudio Castagnoli, and Wheeler, Utah. And I think everybody's fine. I think everybody's good for it. I think it'll be I think it'll be good. But there was part of me watching that show going, when we got there, going, I won't be mad if Mox continues to be the AEW champion. That's the beauty of Mox. He can be AEW champion forever. I, I don't know that there will ever be a time, and I think a lot of fans agree with me, where I won't be rooting for Mox. He's just one of those guys that you root for. And even though, obviously, he came from WWE, he made the choice to leave WWE. He left money on the table to leave WWE and help build AEW. So as champion, he doesn't feel like a guy they just grabbed from WWE. He feels like he's a guy that is a pillar of AEW. Uh, so yeah, thought it was a, a fun show. Um, a lot of rumors are popping off. Uh, you know, we'll talk about Survivor Series and about the war games. Um, look, one of the big parts of war games is the Sami Zayn of it all. And I think that when Sami Zayn was first introduced to the bloodline, it was an exercise that would allow them to eventually have the bloodline turn on Sami Zayn and then have Sammy once again team up with Kevin Owens and have Sammy and Kevin Owens take the title from the Usos. Makes sense. 
I think what they didn't factor in was that Sami Zayn would become the most talked about person in the company, the hot topic of WWE. Why do you think every time I do an interview, I ask people about Sami Zayn? Uh, I think Sami Zayn has actually gone above where he was slotted in to go. And I, I think that the question that's been on a lot of people's minds is, is Sammy the one to beat Roman Reigns? Everybody talks about who's going to be the one to beat Roman Reigns. And I feel like the conversation has been coming up a lot more lately that Sami Zayn is that guy. People are making comparisons to a lot of other underdogs and going, yeah, give Sammy that moment. And while I agree it would be an amazing moment, I don't agree that he should be the one to beat Roman Reigns. I think that with Sami Zayn, all the money is in the chase. And when somebody eventually beats Roman Reigns, they have to be ready to carry on what Roman has done to that title or those titles, depending on how you look at it. They have to be able to take the whole thing forward. This is the new face of the company. If you're going to have, I've seen people suggest this, for example, Roman Reigns uh, loses to Cody Rhodes on night one of WrestleMania and then beats The Rock on night two. Fine, but if you do that, you're destroying Cody Rhodes. It has to be the reverse. It has to be Roman Reigns beats Rock on night one and then loses to Cody Rhodes on night two so that Cody Rhodes' victory against Roman Reigns staples Cody Rhodes as the guy. If after all these years, years at this point, if you're going to have somebody beat Roman Reigns and then Roman Reigns saves face, then you're doing Macho winning the title at WrestleMania four with Hogan next to him. You're, you're doing what you did with Hogan, where you're not letting go of Hogan. And because you're not letting go of Hogan as your true top guy, you're not allowing the champion to become the next top guy. And that's what you have to do with Roman Reigns. And that's why I don't think that Sami's going to be that guy. But what I do think is that we are going to get Sami Zayn versus Roman Reigns. What started as uh, something where you'd get Sami and Kevin Owens versus the Usos, I think that the world now wants Sami Zayn versus Roman Reigns. And I think that the key with Roman Reigns right now is not... Who's the guy that's going to beat Roman Reigns? It's who's a guy that we can make you think might beat Roman Reigns. I think Sheamus is being built up to be a person who might beat Roman Reigns because Roman Reigns is in this dangerous position now where it's like nobody believes he can be beat. So how do we convince somebody that that person can beat Roman Reigns? Well, the job is not make Sammy the guy to beat Roman Reigns. The job is make people think Sammy can beat Roman Reigns. So how do you do that? Well, you would start at the war games and you would have conflict brew. For me, the way I would do it is the bloodline would turn on Jey Uso. Maybe Jey Uso loses the war games for the bloodline or... I want to make Roman as dominant as possible. So I have the bloodline win the war games, uh, but I have Roman be the one who has to win the match and he has to save Jay. So he's disgusted by Jay. He's mad that he had to do that. And so he throws Jay out of the bloodline. Meanwhile, the only reason Jay was in a vulnerable position to begin with is because he was saving Sammy. So we go by and I don't know if we go all the way to the Royal Rumble. Maybe we do, maybe we don't. But early next year, in December, January, we realized it was a swerve 
we have Jey Uso rejoin the bloodline so that they can all turn on Sammy. Sammy gets thrown out of the bloodline or Sammy chooses to leave the bloodline, however you want to do it. But we end up with the bloodline back full and Sammy Zayn on the other side. But Sammy Zayn starts beating members of the bloodline. Sami Zayn beats Solo Sokoa. First, Sami Zayn beats Jimmy Uso. Sami Zayn beats Solo Sokoa. Sami Zayn beats Jey Uso. And it leads to a match with Roman Reigns. When do you do the Sami Zayn versus Roman Reigns match? You don't do it at the Royal Rumble. You do it at the Elimination Chamber. Why is Sami Zayn versus Roman Reigns the main event of the Elimination Chamber? Because this year, the Elimination Chamber pay-per-view emanates from Montreal, the home of Sami Zayn. Sami's, there is no bigger pop. You say, well, what if Sami wins the Elimination Chamber in Montreal? I don't think that that moment would be as big as when Sami Zayn walks out in Montreal to face Roman Reigns. That's the Sami Zayn reaction that you want. That's the Sami Zayn reaction that you're going to get. And you can convince people. Sami might have this moment in his hometown. Maybe you start dropping hints. There's always a way that Roman get Roman will get a rematch. Maybe you say that going in. Roman has a rematch clause built in. If Sami beats Roman Reigns, Roman's getting a rematch. So we go into the pay-per-view knowing that Roman gets a rematch if he loses. So we think that there's a shot that Sami Zayn's going to win this title and either lose it on SmackDown or they'll go all the way to WrestleMania and Roman will beat Sami Zayn at WrestleMania. Either way, he's going to get his title back. It's essential that we think Roman's going to get his title back because if we think Roman's going to get his title back, then there is a possibility that Sami Zayn is going to beat Roman Reigns only to have uh, uh, to be disappointed when we see that Roman does indeed beat Sami Zayn. But the question is, when are we getting Roman Reigns versus Sami Zayn? The time to do Roman Reigns versus Sami Zayn is Elimination Chamber in Montreal with, unfortunately, Roman beating Sami Zayn. And Sami walks out, giving Roman the match of his life and the an even bigger baby face than you could imagine. Now, there's an extended part of this conversation We've all seen Stone Cold Steve Austin training. And he came out with this video this week and he said, uh, he said, I'm just training because I didn't like the way I was looking, but I'm in the leanest shape of my life, blah, blah, blah. I think Steve Austin is coming back at WrestleMania. I think not only do I think Steve Austin is coming back at WrestleMania, I think there's a good possibility that Steve Austin is coming back at WrestleMania and he's taking his shirt off, baby. I think Steve Austin might put trunks back on. Maybe if he can get his quads back up, maybe puts trunks back on. That's maybe what separates this. Maybe because he saw how well things went with Kevin Owens last year. Maybe instead of just saying there's a confrontation that turns into a match, maybe he announces there's a Stone Cold Steve Austin match happening at WrestleMania because his confidence is up. Wouldn't surprise me. And it definitely wouldn't surprise me because I said when the Kevin Owens match happens, if you think that that's going to be Stone Cold's last match, you're out of your mind because it's going to be great. Kevin Owens is too good, and Stone Cold Steve Austin takes too much pride in his work. And when he realizes it's good and the fans are into it, he's going to want to do it again, and he will do it again. I thought it would come sooner than WrestleMania 39, but that's when I think it will happen. Now, who's it going to be? People have been throwing CM Punk's name around, and yes, CM Punk versus Stone Cold Steve Austin, marquee value-wise, would be the biggest match you can do. But match quality-wise, uh, let's, let's pump the brakes there. 
CM Punk is still, I believe, working ring rust off. CM Punk does not have the ability and confidence of somebody that wrestles every single night. And he had good matches in AEW, but he had good opponents in AEW as well. If it's Stone Cold Steve Austin and CM Punk, whoever Stone Cold is in there with is going to have to put a lot of the match on his shoulders. And that's no disrespect to Stone Cold Steve Austin. He's just had one match in 20 years. WrestleMania 39 is the 20th anniversary of Stone Cold Steve Austin's last official advertised match. So 20 years later, he's had one match in the meantime. And you think he's going to carry the thing? Uh-uh, in the words of Stone Cold Steve Austin. So that's why I don't know that CM Punk is a great idea. John Cena is the other name that's come up. I mean, those are the two big matches, right? Stone Cold versus John Cena. But to me, I feel like you want to have Stone Cold Steve Austin have a match that is guaranteed to be a hit. And you got to put somebody in that match that is guaranteed to tell a great story and have a great match. So you look through your roster and you say, who's been in a position where the odds are stacked against them and they're guaranteed to tell a good story, guaranteed to have a good match? You go back to WrestleMania last year. Sami Zayn. There's no reason why Sami Zayn versus Johnny Knoxville should have worked as well as it did, and it did. The reason? Sami Zayn. Sami Zayn can do anything. He is incredible. To me, if I'm booking the first quarter of 2022, I'm having Sami Zayn versus Roman Reigns in a giant match at Elimination Chamber pay-per-view. Sami Zayn loses. How does Sami Zayn get boosted back up? We're not doing Kevin Owens and Sami Zayn versus the Usos. Maybe in the future. But at WrestleMania, after seeing Kevin Owens versus Sami Zayn, I mean, Kevin Owens versus Stone Cold Steve Austin, I'm doing Sami Zayn versus Stone Cold Steve Austin. And it may not make sense now, but based on who Sami Zayn is, if you don't think that'll make sense by the beginning of April 2023, you may not be watching the product. If there's one thing you need to do, it's watch the product. Now, if you've been watching the product, uh, you know that uh, Bianca Belair has been crushing it. I had the opportunity. She is the ambassador for season nine of WWE Supercard, which you can get uh, across all, I believe, mobile platforms, ever, wherever else you get games. But uh, uh, if you're a player of WWE Supercard, you're probably very excited that season nine is out. If you haven't played the game yet, I would recommend giving it a shot, especially this week. Hopefully you got some time off for Thanksgiving or whatever. Check out Season 9 of Supercard. Uh, the ambassador of that game, Bianca Belair, is on with us. And then we got to go over the history of war games. So let's throw it right now to Bianca Belair. The Not Sam Wrestling Interview. I'm trying. I don't see you. Am I, am I not going to see you? Am I just going to hear you? I hope you see me. I mean, maybe for your sake it's better if you don't, but... <laughs> <laughs> uh, there we go. I can see you now. Oh, was it better before? I, well, I'd rather see you. Fantastic. You know? <laughs> I'm glad that you said that. Well, welcome the EST of the WWE, Bianca Belair. And like, I've been thinking about you specifically for like a little bit because I'm trying to process you, how your brain is working, right? Because you go, I see you in Riyadh, part of this unbelievable like press conference and just i feel like you know the reception 
of the WWE fans there, incredible. Then you go and you have this match with Bailey. Unbelievable. Last woman standing, knockdown, drag out, ladders and golf carts and everything. Then you get back on a plane from Saudi Arabia. You go right to Monday Night Raw, where we're just sitting at home watching this stuff, taking it all for granted. And you're challenging people to war games matches. Like, at what point do you get to, like, reflect and at least, like, process <laughs> what is going on? Well, I mean, let's not forget before Saudi, <laughs> we also were in Mexico. Well, my uh, God. <laughs> Saturday and Sunday. Then we went straight to Raw uh, on a flight. Landed at 6 a.m. the Monday morning of Raw. Then we went to Saudi Arabia. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, but, you know, um, it, this lifestyle is nonstop. You know, a lot of people, they don't, they you know, they see us in the ring for the 10 to, to 20, 30 minutes, but sometimes don't realize what all goes into it beforehand and afterhand. Um, a lot of times I feel like I'm on autopilot where I'm just, pushing through and, and trying to get to what's next. And, you know, you really have to stop and reflect on what's happening and how big moments are. And that actually happened to me after the match in Saudi Arabia, I got backstage and I, and I just, I broke down and uh, a lot of people were coming up to me they're like, Oh my God, are you okay? And I'm like, no, they're, they're, they're happy tears. It's good tears because, you know, everything happens so fast and you really have to like soak in the moments and realize how big, the moments are uh but then you get right back on the plane and you go to raw and then now like you said challenging people for war games and on to the next the next <laughs> big thing so it's always just pushing forward and moving through but trying to take the little moments to stop and reflect on how big the, the moments really are especially because i'm sitting there and i'm reading these stories about how you handmade your gear oh. <laughs> for saudi while you were on the road, which it's not yeah. even like you can follow a pattern that you used for previous gear because it's the full body suit and it's yeah. completely decorated and everything. I mean, how does that even work? Like, do you do you have, like make yourself an area in a hotel room? Are you like a master of sewing on a plane? Like, I I'm a master of figuring it out as I go. Yeah. Um, I mean, for one, I never even took a professional sewing class to begin with. I've learned everything from YouTube. So, you know, <laughs> the more busy my schedule gets, um, I'm having a hard time finding time at, at home to make gear. So that's why I had to make it. I had no choice but to make it on the road. And then being overseas, I, I couldn't use my sewing machine because the voltage is so different. It would have blown my sewing machine up. So I do everything by hand. So oh my I'm gosh. literally on the the bus telling people you can't sit beside me because I need this seat to do my gear or on the airplane. Like I need both seats and in the hotel room or in catering, like any, anywhere, any place I could find the locker room in the corner. I'm finding any place that, you know, I can try to make my gear. And I was literally making it up until the night before I went out. <laughs> Which like, yeah. And that goes back to like the reflecting and everything that you don't have a minute of peace. Um, because it's constantly like, nope, you got to get ready for the next thing. Got to get ready for the next thing. Got to get ready for the next thing. I think I think that the war games thing is what really made that occur to me that like you're literally off a plane just going and going and going. Hopefully there's like a day yeah. you could just like, <laughs> oh, yeah. and on the go. <laughs> and and then I hear on this investors call, they go like, oh, yeah, we've uh, we've re-upped our, our deal with Hulu and we're going to have the Montez and Bianca show on Hulu. And I'm like. <laughs> This lady has cameras on her all the time now. Is that what's going on? 
that you know it's it's a non-stop show you know my my new my new merch shirt it says no rest for the best and that is like the most true statement out there you know the little bit of uh downtime that I had at home um it seems like that's going to disappear as well (laughs) (laughs) Um, but at least I get to do it with my husband you know that's that that's the the icing on the cake you know the light at the end of the tunnel is that I do get to do this with my husband so uh that makes things a whole lot sweeter and better (laughs) what's it been like for you was there a click when it was like I feel like in the in the in the beginning you started You've always been up up here, like you, WrestleMania moments, boom, here we go, here we go. But in the beginning, it was like, you know, for for a new person, she's incredible. But you've now passed that point where like you just like you you now you're you're not at the point where you will be the best one day. It's like now is the point where you actually have to every single night be that person. Was there was there a a, a moment when when that kind of clicked? Where it was like, oh, okay, this isn't like we're there now. <laughs> um, I feel like I don't think there's really a moment where it clicked because I feel like I've always tried to have that mentality. Like I've always wanted to go out there and be the best. I've always wanted to have the reputation that anytime Bianca Belair steps steps in the ring, you know that it's going to be a great match. Like it's going to be a sto- a show stiller. Um, I will say, you know, I have to give credit to the women that I'm in the ring with. Like, I'm not in there by myself, and I've been in the ring with some amazing women that it's it's hard to have, you know, bad matches with the women that I've been in the ring with. Um, but now, you know, like I said, like, I've, I feel like I've developed this reputation, so now I'm even going more over and beyond. I'm the type of person, like, I... I throw everything into what I do, everything, whether it's inside the ring, outside the ring, making my gear in the gym, doing media, like I'm going over and beyond. So I feel like I've always kind of had that mentality. Yeah. Yeah. And speaking of people that you like, you're sharing the ring with, right? I was reading and uh, Rhea Ripley was, was, was doing some interviews, right? And they were like, Hey, what are you thinking for WrestleMania this year? And I'm t- re- I don't want to tell tales out of out of school, but Rhea Ripley is throwing your name around in the in the media. I don't <laughs> I don't know if you've seen this, but Rhea Ripley is saying, well, clearly, clearly, I'm the one that should have the match with Bianca this year at WrestleMania. What is, what what is, when you hear that Rhea Ripley is out here in the media saying this is the WrestleMania match that she wants, how does that make you feel? I mean, of course. I mean. I, I feel this the same way. I mean, anytime Rhea Ripley and I get in the ring, we always make magic. And I feel like we did some amazing things at NXT together. And then we came up to Ron SmackDown and we've been on both sides doing amazing things, like on opposite sides of like this mountaintop, trying to reach to the top. So, uh, you know, I'm, I, that would be amazing. I've always considered like Rhea Ripley and I a WrestleMania match, a feud that can go down in history is like one of the best feuds that women have had. I would love to have um, a WrestleMania match with Rhea. Like that's a dream match of mine to have it at WrestleMania. But I will say I still have my goal of taking down all four horsewomen. So I still have Charlotte Flair that I need to take down. Uh, so wow. either, whether Charlotte or Rhea, like I have a, I have so many like WrestleMania matches that I still want to have, but Rhea Ripley is definitely at the top of the list. And you know, she's, she's, she's showing out right now on Raw. Uh, so it's like, you know, when, when we crossed paths last week, I'm like, ah, you know, I knew this was coming. I knew this was coming. We'll, we'll see what happens. <laughs> I also feel like Rhea's heard, like, you know, everybody comments on how strong Bianca is. You're on Instagram 
doing deadlifts and squats with steel stairs and everything. And so I, I do feel like Rhea Ripley is trying to amp it up, slamming big LG Luke Gallows on, on, on Monday Night Raw like it's nothing, not even winded after. Um, with all the like insane feats of strength that you've done in, in, in various matches and, and scenarios, what was the most difficult? Ooh, the most difficult. I'm trying to think. What all? Let's let's put some on the list. I will well, say picking up picking up Otis. That was the one that was that was in my head. Yeah. Uh, for one, I mean, I was I had to pick him up after jumping hurdles and and climbing a wall, and then I'm like, <laughs> I got to pick you up and walk with you. Um, and it was on. You know, people forget sometimes live TV. Like, what happens if? I fall in obstacle course. Um, but picking up Otis, I mean, I think he's probably the heaviest person that I've ever picked up and walked with. Um, <laughs> what a statement. I would, yeah, I, I would think, I, I think picking up Otis, yeah. <laughs> I, I also just love, you're like, I mean, I guess there's nothing harder than picking up Otis, but I did that. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, that's, this is kind of what I do. Um, I think it's- I will say I've also pressed Rhea before. And that, you know, I, oh. I, I put that at the top of my list since we're talking about Rhea. Yes. Before. Oh, she, my head. she should remember that. She <laughs> needs to remember that. I do think it's uh, ironic that we're here. We're talking about, uh, of course, WWE Supercard Season 9 that's out now. Everybody's uh, grabbing it on their, on their mobile phones and everything. They've been playing throughout. They're getting all the cards. They're getting all the new options and everything. When you hear about people getting all excited about these the 2K games and, and the Supercard games and everything, do you go, I remember when I used to have time to play video games. That must be nice. <laughs> uh, yeah, because I don't have, you know, as much time now, but you always have to try to make time for that. I mean, it's just like, it's unreal still knowing that you're in video games and you're in the Supercard and you're in the new season and the new trailer that's coming up and, Knowing that all the fans get so excited about it and knowing that I'm a part of it, I mean, it's it's like it's something that you I never get used to. So I'm just as excited as the fans. Well, Bianca Belair, I hope everybody uh, uh, gets their Bianca Belair Supercards as part of Supercard uh, Season 9 for your phone or where, wherever you're playing right now. It's out. I'm sure Bill McKenna is working on a Mattel figure of your Saudi gear. So that's going to be... Everything gets immortalized. And, uh, and I... I'm glad that we're good. We're good, right? Oh, yeah, we're good. We're, we're good. good. We're good. You know, what happens in the past is in the past. In the past. We got to move on. We got to be better than we were before. And, you know, that's where we're at right now. <laughs> You're a good person. Bianca Belair, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. <laughs> so how about that for a scoop ski, huh? Bianca Belair and Sam Roberts are good. That's the, the Go to the press with it. I mean, I guess you could also... Mention the WrestleMania Rhea Ripley stuff or the making your own gear or maybe even the four horsewomen stuff. And yeah, sure, but the headline here, we're good. We are good. Okay, now that we've heard from Bianca Belair, now that we've discussed some of the stuff that's going on in the world, uh, let's look ahead. And the fact that this weekend we're looking at the War Games match coming to the WWE main roster for the first time, I, I don't think that anybody would say that it's a coincidence that Triple H is in charge. And the first Survivor Series 
that Triple H is in charge for. We've got the War Games, a tradition that started in the NWA, Jim Crockett Promotions, that went on to NXT, now coming to the WWE for the first time. A lot of people are excited. The War Games is a beloved match. It, it may be, in terms of match stipulations, the greatest export from WCW Crockett Promotions there is. We're not seeing a triple ring World War III battle royal. We're not seeing any of the other weird match stipulations that WCW gave us, but War Games lives on. Let's talk about the history of War Games. As, I, as you know, I think it's important to learn from our history and figure out why we love this so much, where it came from, and how it all connects to where we're at today. So in 1987, we were looking at a, a, an era in Jim Crockett promotions where Dusty Rhodes was trying to figure out how to get more out of his rivalry with the Four Horsemen and how to get to a place where, where, where they could give the audience that war that the audience was looking with with one of the greatest heel factions that had ever been created, the Four Horsemen, especially with Dusty Rhodes being one of the great babyfaces that had ever been created. And Dusty Rhodes, he goes to this movie, Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome, and it inspires him. And Dusty, uh, legend has it, went into his, his, his car, and by the light of the interior of the car, he started sketching a design for two rings, and a steel cage. This steel cage would not be like most steel cages. First of all, it would encompass two rings. Second of all, this steel cage would, would hang above the ring, which wasn't something that was really happening at the time. At the time, we were still in an era where steel cages would come out piece by piece and the sides would be applied to the ring during a, a fan intermission. Dusty's idea was for the two rings to be next to each other and the, the cage to be above the ring because the cage would have a roof on it. This is where we get cage pyro that shoots off of it as it comes down. This is a structure that he envisioned that would encompass absolute carnage. And it was also an opportunity to say, hey, we can get all of the horsemen into this match. We can put together a five-on-five -five match where you have limitless star power and main event appeal. Because in the war games, you're going to have two teams of five competing against each other. Now, uh, the, the, the way that the war games would work, or the match beyond, as it was referred to at the time, is you'd have your two teams of five. Generally, at the beginning... You'd have your 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 four horsemen on one side of the ring, and you'd include J.J. Dillon. On the other side, you'd build a super team of babyfaces, of heroes in wrestling. And you'd start with two men inside the double ring. A coin toss or, or some act would happen before the match that would give one team an advantage because you'd have periods that would range between five and two minutes. And every period, another member would enter the match. So whichever team had the advantage, that team was 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 given a numbers advantage every few minutes. 
You'd start one-on-one, and then it would be two-on-one. You'd go to two-on-two. You'd go three-on-two. It'd be three-on-three. You'd go four-on-three. It'd be four-on-four. You'd go five-on-four until you could have that heroic moment, and the final member of the final team would enter the match, and we'd be even. And once we were even, and we were at a five-on-five situation, that is when the match beyond could finally begin. All this battling that would be happening before all the team members got into the ring, that would all be a prelude to what was actually going to happen. Now, what was key here is that the only way to win war games, a match where there was no escape, where there were no rules, anything goes, was submission. Submit or surrender was the only way to lose the match. So a team would have to attack a member of another team so badly that that individual would surrender and he would lose the match for the entire team. Which is why psychologically, I mean, the War Games was built for Dusty Rhodes versus the Horsemen, right? So it's built, this match is built to tell one story. And when War Games is done right, It's the same story that gets told every time. I'm still not tired of hearing the same story. But it's the way war games works. A a, a team of super good guys versus a team of super villains. You've got to have one, at least one member of each team, even though they're all superstars, that is a little bit weaker. That's why, for instance, in the beginning, you'd have J.J. Dillon joining the Horsemen, and you'd have Paul Ellering, the manager of the Road Warriors, joining whatever the the, the babyface team was. That way, you could conceivably have somebody surrender without the bad guys or the losers losing credibility. That's the other thing. Generally speaking, it would be the villains that lost. It would be the villains that had the advantage every time, and it would be the villains that lost after the hero came in and made a hero's return. Now, generally speaking, you would think, oh, the biggest star is the one that comes in at the end. Not necessarily. A lot of times you would end with the with the most uh, 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 with the strongest member of your team. For instance, uh, Nikita Koloff could could close a war games match. Road Warrior Hawk at one point would 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 close a war games match. But the psychological story of each war games match should kind of be the same because when done properly, it's masterful. Now, the very first war games match happened uh, in that year, 1987, on July 4th at the Great American Bash Show in Atlanta. Uh, your, your good guys team was Dusty Rhodes, Nikita Koloff, the Road Warriors, and Paul Ellering. And the people that they took on were the four horsemen, Rick, Arn, Tully, Lex Luger, and J.J. Dillon. So obviously the amount of star power in the single match it was off the charts charts and 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 you found this main event attraction match that all the members of the horsemen could participate in and the psychological layout of the match that I just presented is exactly how this one went shockingly it was JJ Dillon who would submit in this very first war games match uh to a beatdown that the road warriors put on him but what this would do is it would allow you to have this great heroic moment where Dusty and the Road Warriors and Koloff and all these guys could could stand firm. Uh, the, the moment that you had been waiting for to finally see the horsemen get what was coming to them happened. But because it was J.J. Dillon that surrendered, 
you could keep this thing going as long as you want to. And originally, especially before pay-per-view was the thing to do in wrestling, the War Games match was not only not saved for pay-per-view, but it happened much more than once a year. It was something that they took on tour. Uh, Jim Crockett Promotions did the match again on July 31st of 1987 uh, at the Great American Bass Show in Miami where the War Machine, who was played by Ray Trailer, the guy who played the big boss man as well, uh, took J.J. Dillon's place on the Horseman team. And it was indeed the War Machine at this July 31st event uh, that submitted a road warrior animal gouging his eye with a spiked wristband. So it wasn't like you'd lock somebody in, you know, a dreaded ankle lock or something and they'd submit. It was it was brutality. And it was what they did. Of course, the good guys team was the same. Uh, it happened uh, twice more. With that uh, five person uh, teams that involved Dusty on one side and members of the horsemen on the other. In 1988, they took the match on tour on a much larger scale as part of the Great American Bash. They did 11 war games matches in about six weeks. In 1988, Dusty was, uh, he was part of about half the war games matches they had uh, with Sting and Lex Luger joining the Road Warriors uh, and a fifth teammate in a lot of the matches against the Four Horsemen, which at that point was Flair, Arn, Tully, Barry Windham, and J.J. Dillon. 11 matches. The Horsemen was always that lineup, and they were never quite able to get out on top. But it was interesting because they were now using this match that had been established with Dusty as a way to, you know, Dusty still participated in five or six of them, but it was a way to get Lex Luger, who had now left the Horsemen and become a, a, a babyface, a hero, and uh, as a kind of kind of establish him as a top tier good guy. And the same for Sting. Sting was this newcomer who they were trying to really, really build up. And one of the ways they did that was to make him a key member of a lot of these War Games matches in 1988. In 1989, the Great American Bash came to pay-per-view for the first time. And this is when uh, WCW had acquired Jim Crockett Promotions. So while it was World Championship Wrestling Presents, you know, it, it was still kind of the NWA, but World Championship Wrestling was presenting this match. Um, and it was the headline of the pay-per-view. This time, the 1989 War Games match um, was at the Great American Bash, the Road Warriors, the Midnight Express, and Dr. Death Steve Williams. So you had the Road Warriors from the original War Games matches, but Dusty, Lex, Sting, none of those guys were there. It was the Road Warriors, the Midnight Express, and Dr. Death Steve Williams defeating three members of the fabulous Freebirds, all three at the time, which was Michael Hayes, Jimmy Garvin, and Terry Gordy, and the Samoan SWAT team, Samu and Fatu, before they became the head shrinkers in WWE. Uh, they did the exact same match again at a house show in August of that year, so like a couple of months later. But that's a very interesting one and an often forgotten, I think, War Games match because you don't have the Horsemen, you don't have Dusty. That's when, that this to me, the 1989 War Games match is when the match itself becomes the attraction, where the match was built to house the attraction of Dusty versus the Horsemen. In 1989, that's when they start going, maybe War Games just as a match on its own is enough to attract an audience. And they found that to be the case. Uh, 
The Four Horsemen uh, got their first and only War Games victory in 1991. So they took a break in 1990. They came back in 1991. Uh, but this was the only time that the Four Horsemen as a group actually won War Games with all the times. I mean, the match was built for them. Uh, that version of the Four Horsemen was Ric Flair, Barry Windham, Sid Vicious, and Larry Zbysko. They got their first and only War Games victory against Sting, Brian Pillman, and the Steiner Brothers. This was also the first four-on-four -four War Games match. Um, and this was all about, it was just like cramming as much star power, I guess, as you could into that ring. It was at the Wrestle War pay-per-view. And when you look at, at, at what you've got, especially on the good guys team, right? Because the four horsemen, Arne Anderson is on the outside of the ring for the horsemen in 1991. But uh, you've got Sting and the Steiner brothers who are established top acts in WCW at the time. And Brian Pillman, I guess, is the one that they're trying to elevate. But at the same time, he's also the smaller one. He's like, they're treating him almost like Rudy where, you know, he is the guy that's in the position to take the fall. And that's exactly what happens. This is kind of a notorious war games match because this is the one that everybody's seen with the just devastating and sloppy Sid powerbomb on Brian Pillman. This is the one where Sid picks up Pillman to powerbomb him, but the ceiling on this cage is so low that Pillman's feet hit the ceiling. Sid can't get Pillman all the way up, so he just powerbombs him legit on the back of his head, and you look at this like, oh my God, and of course Sid, in all his wisdom, decided, oh, I better try that again, and he powerbombs him again. Uh, Pillman is rendered unconscious, so that is how the good guys lose this pay-per-view war games match at Wrestle War and the horsemen are able to win. Technically it's not submit or surrender, but when Pillman is is unresponsive, the referee calls it and says, okay, that counts as submitting or surrendering. Uh El Gigante ends up coming to the ring at the end of this thing. He rips the cage right off the door. Like he's the world's strongest man, Mark Henry, but the match is already over. Uh and he's really just there to watch Brian Pillman's back, to make sure that Sid Vicious doesn't do anything else to his little buddy, Brian Pillman. Um, but that year, WCW would take war games on the road again. They ran five war games matches at house shows throughout the summer of 1991, all over the place. I think they did one in Long Island, Nassau Coliseum. It involved uh, Gigante uh, was in some of the matches, Barry Windham, Cactus Jack, One Man Gang, The Yellow Dog, Diamond Stud was in a War Games match in 91 on this tour, uh, but always Sting. So Sting was now in that kind of dusty spot where he was the top good guy that was looking to take on these foes. Um, it was 1992 when they stopped taking War Games on the road. In 1992, the match became a pay-per-view only attraction. Uh, and they put on what's, I think, uh, my favorite of the pay-per-view war games match. It's definitely my favorite of the pay-per-view war games matches. You know, 1989 on, it's hard not to say that some of those, you know, dusty road warriors, Nikita Koloff, Paul Ellering versus the Horseman matches are not the best war games matches because war games was literally built to tell their story. But in terms of the matches that were on pay-per-view, I think 1992 is my favorite. And this match doesn't have the Horseman in it at all. In fact, it's got Sting's squadron, which is Sting, Nikita Koloff, throwback from the original War Games match, Dustin Rhodes, generational, Dusty Rhodes' son, Ricky Steamboat, and Barry Windham, now on the good guys team, 
versus the Dangerous Alliance, which is Arn Anderson, again, one, an original member of the Horsemen, Bobby Eaton, Steve Austin, Larry Zbysko, and Rick Rude. Of course, with the Dangerous Alliance, you have uh, Paul E. Dangerously. So 1992, Paul E. Dangerously, as a manager, is leading the Dangerous Alliance into war games. That's 1992. 30 years later, 2022, you've got Paul Heyman leading the bloodline as the special counsel to the tribal chief into the war games. The amount of history that is layered through this thing is amazing. Uh, this was the first pay-per-view war games match to happen while Ric Flair was in WWE. So that's part of the reason, I think, why the Horsemen had disbanded and, and it wasn't happening anymore. Um, at one point, Medusa, who was also at ringside with Pauly Dangerously, scaled the outside of the cage. She was trying to slip, I believe it was Arn Anderson, Pauly Dangerously's devastating cell phone uh, so he could hit people with it. But there was no seam in the cage where they were. She couldn't get it up from below. So... From what legend has it is an ad-libbed moment, not a planned moment. At ringside, she literally realizes, well, in order to get this spot done, the phone's got to get in there. She climbed up on the roof of the cage. This was six years before Mankind and The Undertaker and Hell in a Cell and slips the phone down as Sting chases her up on the other side of the roof of the cage. Uh, it's great. It's a, it's a great moment. 1993, though is where uh, the war games uh, moved to fall brawl. And by the way, Sting Squadron obviously won that match. We go back to the tradition of generally heroes winning these war games matches. 1993 is when the war games moved to fall brawl. Uh, and it's infamous for the debut of the Shockmaster. So where in 1988, I think I said it was, maybe 89, uh, Sting is added to the War Games match. Lex Luger is added to the good guy side of the War Games match to try to build up those heroes. In 1993, it's the Shockmaster who is making his debut, actually. His first WCW match is in the double ring War Games cage at Fall Brawl 93. Uh, but it doesn't go the way they planned. Uh, a new team called Harlem Heat is teaming with Vader and Sid Vicious to make up the heels in this match. So it's not the horsemen anymore. It's not the dangerous Alliance. It's just a team of super villains, which honestly Harlem heat Vader and Sid is an incredible villainous team, but it's also Harlem heats first WCW pay-per-view. They have not been on WCW pay-per-view before fall brawl 93. And they're in the main event in the war games with Sid with Vader. And they're facing sting Davy Boy Smith, Dustin Rhodes is coming back for this War Games match, and a mystery partner uh, in what was to begin the new norm, which would be four-on-four War Games matches. They'd done it before, as I said, but almost all the time it had been five-on-five. Five. Now we're shifting, and they're really trying to stick with four-on-four. Four. I prefer five-on-five, five, but four-on-four. Four. Uh, at Clash of the Champions during the A Flair for the Gold interview segment, both war games teams are on the set 
And this is the moment that they're going to announce Sting, Bulldog, and Dustin Rhodes who their mystery partner is in this War Games match. And Sting makes that announcement that I'm sure you guys have all seen many times. He's here to shock the world because he is the shock master. Uh, and as uh, the former typhoon charges through a paper-thin wall with a glittered stormtrooper helmet on, nobody tells him that there's a non-breakable two-by-four at the bottom of the wall used as a support, which he trips over, falls flat on his face, and is unfortunately never taken seriously again. Um, by the time they get to war games, uh, he doesn't look the same at all. By the time they get to war games, uh, the Shockmaster is dressed as a construction worker. He's got like a work shirt on. He's got jeans. He's got a hard hat on. And the commentators are making reference to the fact that we all saw him fall on his face. And it's fairly embarrassing. But nevertheless, they still move forward with the Shockmaster as that difference maker. Um, for some reason, Road Warrior Animal is also is in the corner of Sting, Dustin Rhodes, Bulldog, and the Shockmaster. I, I almost feel like why not just put Animal in the match and have the Shockmaster at ringside because things didn't go well. But whatever. Shockmaster is not only in the match, but he's the last to be introduced. He's got the spot where he's coming in as the hero to save his team that's at a disadvantage and save them he does. Booker T has had a lot of glorious moments on pay-per-view since 1993. But Booker T's first pay-per-view main event was War Games. And Booker T is the one who submits or surrenders uh, for his team of supervillains when Booker T is placed in a bear hug by the Shockmaster. And the bear hug applied to the, the Booker T by the Shockmaster is so vicious that Booker T is forced to submit. Yes, I know. The bear hug is a move that we've seen many, many times. Um, I've never seen anybody submit to the bear hug in the modern era except at War Games Fall Brawl 93 when Booker T submitted to the bear hug that the Shockmaster <laughs> applied to him, allowing Sting, Bulldog, Dustin Rhodes, and the Shockmaster to win the War Games. Very anticlimactic finish. Uh, War Games starts to dip at this point, but it's still okay as Fall Brawl 94 sees Dusty and Dustin Rhodes and the Nasty Boys overcome Terry Funk, Arn Anderson, Bunkhouse Buck and Colonel Robert Parker in a war games match that, that goes back to honoring a little bit more of the history of it, but it doesn't quite get there. Like at this point in 94, none of those teams really have the, the star power that they once did. When you look at them, it's like, oh, cool. Arn Anderson, Dusty and Dustin. Yeah. Nasty boys. That's a big team. But like nobody in that match is at the top of the card in WCW in 1994, you know? It's, it's, WCW is at a weird place and the weirdness continues as the War Games goes to Fall Brawl 1995. And I mean, we are barely hanging on to War Games at this point as the Hulkamaniacs beat the Dungeon of Doom inside of War Games. Can you imagine if the Jim Crockett promotion fans in 1987 watching Dusty's team of heroes overcome the Four Horsemen if you had told them, give us eight years 
and we will have the Dungeon of Doom versus the Hulkamaniacs in war games, they would they they probably stop watching wrestling right then. Uh, the Hulkamaniacs was Hulk Hogan, Randy Savage, Lex Luger, and Sting, which on paper is one of the greatest babyface teams ever built. It's just star, 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 star. It's you to some people that might be Mount Rushmore, quite frankly. The Dungeon of Doom team that they defeated is not quite as big, but still, you know, Kamala, the Shark, the Zodiac, and Meng. So Kamala, Brutus, Beefcake, Earthquake, and Haku. Um, like I said, the Babyfaces are one of the most amazing teams ever assembled in terms of pure star power. But I mean, the storyline, and as you can tell from the villains, feels like at least five years removed. Also feels like it came from a different way of presenting wrestling, the way WWF at the time was presenting wrestling, not the way Jim Crockett promotion. So like war games, think about the finish that I just described to you with Road Warrior Animal trying to gouge the war machine's eyes out with his spiked wristband. And now we're taking it more towards what like WWE would have been doing in 1990 with the over-the-top cartoon characters. It just, it, it didn't it didn't work on any level, and it doesn't really make for much of a memorable match, unfortunately. Uh, War Games came back, though, in 1996. And this is a very important War Games match. While psychologically not exactly a masterclass, it still sets things in motion in a major way. And the 1996 War Games match, to me, is important because it's just another example of... History revolving around what was happening in war games. 1993, not a great war games match, but the Shockmaster is one of the most iconic things to ever happen in wrestling for all the wrong reasons. And war games, I think, has a lot to do with that. Uh, so WCW is changing with the times in the fall of 1996, but uh, that also meant abandoning old philosophies and seeing the villains now dominate war games because the villains were dominating absolutely everything. The new world order has come in. And the NWO in this match is being represented by Hollywood Hogan, Scott Hall, Kevin Nash, and NWO Sting. And they're taking on the WCW team of Lex Luger, Ric Flair, Arn Anderson, and the real Sting. Now, on paper... This is the quintessential NWO versus WCW War Games match. They are never able to duplicate this success, which is ironic because you would think that the NWO, the way War Games was built for the Horsemen, the NWO should be able to slide right into that, that spot. The fact that faction warfare was alive and well in WCW and the NWO was the hottest thing since the Four Horsemen in that territory, and probably hotter, you would think that that the War Games was built to have a super NWO team versus a super WCW team. But I, my opinion, it only happened this one time. And really, the reason this match is, is so important is that it sets up the most important storyline that WCW had in the late 90s. This is the match where Sting does not appreciate his loyalty being questioned. This is the match where the NWO is claiming that they have Sting on their team. And WCW is questioning Sting's loyalty. For some reason, I believe in most of this match, the, the athletes from WCW believe this to be the actual Sting that they're competing against until 
The real sting comes out, delivers uh, some stinger splashes, and then leaves because he's dismayed at what WCW did to him and the fact that after everything he's done for WCW, they don't support him. This was the match that led to the promo one night after War Games on WCW Nitro where Sting says, the only thing that's for sure about Sting is nothing's for sure. This is the last time we see Rainbow. He's not surfer Sting because his hair is brown, but this is the last time we see brightly colored Rainbow Sting. Sting responds to War Games by cutting that promo, disappears, and for the next 16 months, we see Crow Sting in face paint watching WCW from the bleachers. Very crucial to where WCW is going. Now, WCW still has not won back Sting in the fall of 1997. But for War Games, again, on paper, this should be a great War Games match because it literally is a collision of two generations. And if anybody was paying attention in WCW, they would have realized this is the 10-year anniversary. 1997 is 10, year, 10 years removed from Dusty Rhodes creating this match in 1987. And the match that they have is the New World Order versus the Four Horsemen. It should be the most iconic war games of all time. It is not. For a few reasons. Number one, going into this match, the NWO has viciously mocked the horsemen, right? This is where, you know, uh, Arn Anderson has given up his spot. Not my dog spot, not my liver spot, my spot. To Kurt Henning, they cut the big, uh, 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 amazing promo that the crowd at the time loved, right? The next week, the NWO come out and do a parody of it and just bury it into the ground. And I have no problem with that. But by war games psychology, war games is built. So you put, you know, Vincent Virgil in the war games match on the NWO's team and you can give the horsemen a victory in this war games match only for the NWO to then you know Hollywood Hogan can beat Ric Flair in his singles or Kevin Nash can beat Ric Flair in his singles or whatever you're going to do after you can give the horsemen that moment and keep it moving however they don't do that the NWO in 1997 is represented by Kevin Nash Conan Six and Buff Bagwell, which, look, Kevin Nash is a big, bright star. Conan and Six are, are, are two of the best wrestlers that you will ever see, and Buff was the stuff. But Kevin Nash, Conan, Six, and Buff Bagwell is not the NWO super team. It's not nearly the most stacked version of the NWO. So you're going in going, we don't need the best version of the NWO to beat the Horsemen. The horsemen at this time are Ric Flair, Chris Benoit, Kurt Henning, and Steve Mongo McMichael. And after humiliating the horsemen on the Nitros leading up to the pay-per-view and presenting a team that is not their strongest, the NWO beats the four horsemen. They defeated the four horsemen in War Games 97. So it's no surprise that by 1998, War Games is a shell of what it used to be. So in 1998... WCW, I guess, is also a shell of what it used to be. The NWO is a shell of what it used to be. In fall Brawl 1998, the NWO has splintered. So now we've got NWO Hollywood and NWO Wolfpack. 
So we opt for, instead of doing a five on five or a four on four, for the first time we go three on three on three for War Games Fall Brawl 1998. We've got Team WCW, which is DDP, Roddy Piper, and the Ultimate Warrior versus Team NWO Hollywood, which is Hollywood Hogan, Bret Hart, and Stevie Ray versus Team Wolfpack, which is Kevin Nash, Sting, and Lex Luger. Now, this is probably, it's got to be the most star-studded War Games match that's ever happened. You've got DDP, Roddy Piper, Ultimate Warrior, Hulk Hogan, Bret Hart, Kevin Nash, Sting, and Lex Luger. God bless you, Stevie Ray. All in the same match, which is wild to think about. Which is even more wild to think about the fact that this match falls directly under the radar with all that star power, but that is sort of... Uh, a microcosm of everything that was wrong with WCW at the time. There's no reason why this shouldn't be the greatest War Games match of all time. It's not even close to the list. Um, there's a lot of convoluted storytelling in this match. Is the problem between the NWO Hollywood, the NWO Wolfpack. You've got the Ultimate Warrior in here, which is not historically looked at as the greatest run of all time. Uh, and the really odd thing is... That this is the match where instead of submit or survive or, you know, submit or surrender for your team, the teams mean absolutely nothing because it's pinfall or submission. And the person who scores the pinfall will become the number one contender for the WCW championship. So the teams mean nothing because if I'm Roddy Piper, I'm not going to try to make sure my team wins. I'm going to try to make sure I get the decision. And if I see DDP going to pin Stevie Ray, I'm going to break up that pinfall so that I may pin Stevie Ray to get the greatest reward in the game. Now, DDP does end up pinning Stevie Ray, which that part is war games psychology. Stevie Ray is in the match with all the icons. God bless Stevie Ray, no offense, to take the fall. But if you're going to reward a victory to the singular victor of war games, you're now lost in the sauce. Why are we having a war games? The teams don't matter. It gets worse for war games. I mean, somehow it gets worse for war games. The single worst war games match of all time. And boy, is war games a steep decline. Is that way because... It is technically a war games match. You do, in my opinion, have to put this on the list of official war games matches because it is called war games and it is announced as such. But they stopped doing war games matches on pay-per-view after 1998, probably because it does, the match didn't make any sense anymore. And I would, ima- I, I would think that after 1998, I guess because Dusty wasn't around, I don't know, Although he was around, wasn't he? Somebody should have just asked him, what are we supposed to do here? Because it was almost like they forgot why War Games existed in the first place. And they don't remember anytime soon. Because two years later, in September of 2000, they say, screw doing this at Fall Brawl. The only thing that matters is TV ratings, bro. And we are deep in the Vince Russo era of WCW. It is announced that in September of 2000, 
A match is coming to WCW Nitro. It is not announced a month in advance. It is not announced three weeks in advance. It is announced, I believe, one week in advance. That Vince Russo is bringing, this is the name of the match. War Games 2000, Russo's Revenge to Nitro. War Games 2000, Russo's Revenge. Technically a War Games match because War Games is in the title. But War Games 2000, Russo's Revenge existed because, and this is not fake, Bill Goldberg, well, it is fake in the sense that it's a storyline, obviously, but this actually happened. Bill Goldberg attempted to kidnap Vince Russo, bring him out to the desert, and bury him alive. He was able to kidnap Russo. He was able to bring him out to the desert. But before he had the opportunity to bury him alive, Bret Hart showed up in the desert and saved Vince Russo. This left Vince Russo very upset. And so that's why this is called Russo's Revenge, War Games 2000. Um, now, this version of War Games is not in a double ring. It is in a single ring. However, they figure we'll take away one ring, but we'll add two cages. Yes, add two cages. This is uh, right around the same era that David Arquette won the WCW Championship in a promotional tactic for the movie Ready to Rumble. The movie Ready to Rumble also features a triple cage that Jimmy King must win the world title back. Ventures must have seen the film and thought that was a good idea for War Games. War Games 2000 Russo's Revenge takes place in a single ring surrounded by a stacked triple cage. A giant Hell in a Cell looking cage with one smaller cage on top of it and a third even smaller cage on top of the first one. Uh, it features Kevin Nash, Jeff Jarrett, Scott Steiner, and Vince Russo along with the Harris Brothers uh, a team that Vince calls the Baby Faces, <laughs> which is okay because in storyline, they're actually the people that you're booing. So I get that what he's going for is Vince is the evil promoter, considers them the Baby Faces, even though they're the heels. But even calling it Baby Faces versus heels just points out that wrestling is fake and makes no sense to do. Uh, uh, they competed against the heels, is what this team was called which was Booker T, Goldberg, Sting, and Chronic. Chronic, by the way, was over as a tag team at the time. So uh, this, again, going back to WCW, a lot of star power in this match. But the purpose of this match is that uh, in order to win, you have to, you start in the bottom, in the ring, which is in the bottom cage. You then must ascend to the secondary cage Ascend to the, I believe, tertiary, maybe, might be. No, I don't think that is the word. You have to ascend to the third cage. You have to retrieve the WCW championship. You have to go back down through the third cage, into the second cage, into the first cage, and then exit the ring and leave the first cage through the door. A lot of questions are asked. Number one, why have teams? Theoretically, all 
one, two, three, four, nine men. I, I maybe the Harris brothers too, since they're in there. But theoretically, all competitors in this match would be just climbing up the cage. Why wouldn't? Why would they care whose team was on it? If the goal is to win the WCW championship, are you happy if your team member has won the championship? I don't think so. Two. Why wouldn't you just jump down the outside of the cage after you get the title? Why would you go back down through the inside of the cages full of nine wrestlers? Three, this does not apply by the original War Games rules where the match beyond doesn't begin until all members are in the ring. The match actually begins when the first two members are in the ring. Why wouldn't the first two members of this match just simply climb up before all those other obstacles get there and uh, duke it out the two of them? For the title. This match is so illogical that even the commentators ask these questions. However, the commentators do not supply the answers to these questions, and instead, what we get is a match full of swerves, including Goldberg. Uh, also, here's another question Why climb the cages at all? Why not wait until somebody is going to exit the ring, simply guard the door, and attack him before he can leave the ring? Once you have possession of the title and you leave the cage, you get to win the match and be the champion. Why climb all three cages? If somebody else is going, well, regardless. Um, Kevin Nash is the champion. He's mad that Vince Russo uh, put his title up for grabs, even though he's on the Vince Russo team. Uh, but in the match, there's a swerve because Goldberg gets the title and he's about to leave, but then Bret Hart, who's not in the match, slams the door on Goldberg's face, rendering him unconscious. It is a mesh cage. Then Goldberg is rendered unconscious. He drops the belt. Different members of the teams uh, try to grab the title. Vince Russo gets his hands on the title. In another swerve, hands the title to Kevin Nash. Kevin Nash exits the cage. So either uh, Kevin Nash or his team or whoever win, and Kevin Nash is the champion, and there's a lot of swerves, bro. And that's the last WCW War Games match. It really goes out on a whimper. There is a rumor that 20 years ago, almost to the day, Survivor Series 2002, after WWE had acquired WCW and WCW's intellectual properties, that Triple H wanted to bring war games to the WWE. Yes, that is the rumor. That in 2002, 20 years ago to Survivor Series 2022, Triple H wanted war games to come to Madison Square Garden and Survivor Series. Vince McMahon opted to do something different and that's why we saw the debut of the Elimination Chamber. Now, I believe this story because the Elimination Chamber does seem like it could be derivative to some degree of war games. If somebody said, I, I don't mind doing war games, a multi-person match, different people enter the ring at different times, but I don't want to do a pay-per-view with an empty ring next to the active ring for the entire time. Elimination Chamber is something that, that would be created, but... That happened in 2002. Triple H participated in that first uh, uh, Elimination Chamber match. Shawn Michaels wins the title. 
But 15 years after that match, in uh, 2017, Triple H finally gets his wish, and he brings War Games to NXT. Now, in NXT, War Games returned, but it was different. It was more traditional, certainly, than War Games 2000 Russo's Revenge, uh, but the NXT version of War Games uh, had the roof removed from the cage. This is so they could do uh, more spectacular aerial stunts and just have more freedom to do what they wanted. Uh, the heel babyface advantage was brought back. The sort of uh, match doesn't begin until all members are in the ring was brought back. Two people start, you know, yeah, that was all brought back. Pinfalls work kept in. We got pinfalls in 2000. We got pinfalls in 1998. So the NXT rules were that the match officially begins when all members are in and the match can only end by pinfall or submission. Uh, I don't love that. I love uh, submit or surrender, but pinfall or submission was added in. They also added in a, a steel kind of platform catwalk type thing which is little, but I thought ingenious that was stripped between the two rings. You know, usually you just had two rings pushed together. So you had this gap in between NXT added that platform uh, between the two, which the aesthetic, I think, has has added greatly to it. Um, they also added shark cages. They were the ones, I believe, that added uh, having housing the members of the teams that were not in the match in shark cages as... As, and then the shark cage would open and allow them to enter the match at the timed intervals. Uh, in 2017, the first TakeOver War Games, uh, we saw uh, it was three on three on three. It was the Undisputed Era defeating Sanity as well as the Authors of Pain and Roderick Strong. Now, at that point, the Undisputed Era was just Kyle O'Reilly, Adam Cole, uh, and Bobby Fish. But so they, they beat Sanity... And they beat uh, the Authors of Pain and Roderick Strong, which was awesome because the Authors of Pain were, of course, uh, managed by Paul Ellering. So definitely harkened back to the history. NXT has done zero bad War Games matches. All the War Games matches have been great. And the way the original War Games was built around the Four Horsemen, the NXT War Games was always built around the Undisputed Era. Uh, in 2018, we went back to four-on-four four with Pete Dunne, Ricochet, and the War Raiders, now the Viking Raiders, uh, beating the now four-man Undisputed Era. By now, Roderick Strong uh, had joined the Undisputed Era, uh, but the Undisputed Era were defeated by the good guys in this War Games match, which, even though it's four-on-four four and pinfalls are added— does go back to what should traditionally happen in a War Games match. In 2019, 2020, and 2021, uh, NXT started showcasing uh, both a men's and, for the first time, a women's War Games uh, match at each of their War Games events, with the Undisputed Era competing in all but the 2021 men's War Games match because that was the uh, NXT 2.0 War Games match, which is incredible to watch. You know, it's Team Black and Gold versus Team 2.0. Team Black and Gold is great. Gargano, Champa, uh, uh, Butch, Pete Dunn, whatever. Uh, and uh, I believe LA Knight versus uh, the 2.0 team. And watching the 2.0 team in this War Games match is incredible 
Because for a lot of people, they've barely had any matches. You know, Braun Breaker's barely had any matches at this point. Uh, 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 Tony D'Angelo has barely had any matches at this point. There's a great spot with Grayson Waller. So that match to me is special for a different reason, but will never be looked on as fondly because it's NXT 2.0. The Undisputed Era is gone by that point. Um, but the NXT era of War Games matches did give us a ton of great moments. Uh, the Kevin Owens return for War Games, which harkens back to where we're going in 2022. Uh, Dakota Kai turning heel happened at War Games. And of course, Pat McAfee showing the whole world as well as the Undisputed Era how much he was truly capable of inside that War Games cage. I mean, that's something you can't take away from that dude. Pat McAfee has competed at a high level in the War Games. Uh, and and he showed up, man. It was, it, was, it was a great moment. Now, 20 years after it was originally rumored to be suggested, the War Games match finally arrives on the WWE main roster, and it goes back to the original five-on-five five format, which, thank God, it does. Uh, spotty as it may be, War Games history goes back further than Hell in a Cell. It goes back further than the Royal Rumble. It goes back further than the Survivor Series itself. War Games was created with the four horsemen in mind. It's only right that the bloodline is the faction that brings War Games back to being one of the biggest attractions that exists in all of professional wrestling. So the question is, does that mean the bloodline should lose war games? Historically, war games was built so that the dominant heel faction could suffer a loss and still maintain their credibility. And if that's the case, who is the weak member of the bloodline? I think that's the problem. There is no weak member of the bloodline. If Paul Heyman were in the match, then you could have Paul Heyman surrender and boom, Bob's your uncle. The story can be told. But at one point you would say Sami Zayn might be the weak member of the bloodline, but not anymore. He's one of the most over people in wrestling. He's clearly being built to get a Roman Reigns match. Uh, you could have Jey Uso do it. You could have Jey Uso screw out Sami Zayn. This is the type of event that you could have Sheamus pin Roman Reigns, but if you think Roman Reigns is getting beaten in this War Games match, I don't think so. If it's up to me, I think this is one that bucks tradition. If it's up to me, the bloodline stands strong in this match. But look, if it was up to me, the bloodline stands strong in every match that exists in the WWE. I'm excited to see it. I hope you've enjoyed a look back in time. Uh, and we'll see you next week here on Not Sam Wrestling. Thanks for listening. Follow at NotSam on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Rate, review, and subscribe. This has been Not Sam Wrestling. Not Sam Wrestling.